Jim, when a young officer is exposed to unknown dangers for the first time, he's under tremendous emotional stress. Now, we all know that. Ensign Garabick is a ship command decision. You're straying out of your field, Doctor. Am I? I was speaking of Lieutenant James T. Kirk of the Starship Farragut. Bridge to all decks. It's time for a brand new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve and Ralph. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And you know, we've always talked about that Star Trek teaches us lessons. There is one really specific lesson in this episode that I literally use today. So I'm really excited to talk about it and even more excited to talk about it with our very, very special guest. Welcome you back to Enterprise Incidents, Ralph Sinensky. Happy to be here. Ralph Sinensky, this is the fourth episode of Star Trek you directed. And, and unlike your previous episodes, you know, when you went from this side of paradise to metamorphosis, there, there was a bit of a break there. And then there was another break between metamorphosis and bread and circuses. But this one came around pretty quickly. How, how yeah. did it come around? Well, at the end of bread and circuses, Herb Solo and John Meredith Lucas came down to the set and asked me to do a special show that, and I don't know why they had lost, you know, why it was not booked. Incidentally, I said last time when we did Britain Circuses that I, I was sure it was Joe Pevney and that that he quit. Actually, he did a sh- another show, one more show. So I, I don't know who, who it was that dropped out. Well, I, I actually did a little bit of research because I remember you were talking about that. And it was actually Vincent McAvity. Well, well, here's so here's what happened. This is a really interesting story. So when the initial 16 episode order for season two of Star Trek concluded with a, a private little war, they were still waiting for the order for the back 10. So in the interim, while the order was was still sort of being worked on, NBC did order two more episodes. And from those episodes, producer John Meredith Lucas chose the Gamesters of Triskelion and Obsession. And Gamesters was supposed to be filmed first, but it was it was coming in too expensive. The budget was coming in way over budget. So, so they switched the stories. And when they switched Obsession to be filmed before Gamesters, uh, Vincent McAvity had already, because he was waiting, so he booked another gig and that opened the door for Ralph, for you to come in and to work your magic on Obsession. So there you go. <laughs> and it, it worked out fine because from this side of Paradise, there was a three-month lapse before I did Metamorphosis, and then another three-month lapse from that to Bread and Circuses. <laughs> and this time I just had six days off, and then I've reported to started to prepare. And I think that kind of made the show easier because – there was a rhythm. I mean, before, you know, between Paradise and Metamorphosis, I did Mission Impossible. And then between the next one, I did Judd for the Defense. And it was it, it was nice to do a couple of shows in a row. Oh, wow. That, that must have yeah, just sort of kept you in that in that rhythm. Yeah. And uh, it, it, the interesting thing is, from what I understand, like there was a there was one part of the filming schedule for Obsession that you were concerned about when it came to the the scheduling because uh, uh, it was around the same time as, as Yom Kippur. So you still went ahead and did the episode. And what happened during the day where you had to leave early? <laughs> well, uh, when we get to the scenes, I'll tell you which scenes John Meredith Lucas 
directed. See, this is why Ralph Sinensky really is the fourth host of Enterprise <laughs> Incident, Steve. <laughs> so, uh, yes, this is Ralph's fourth episode as director. Obsession was written by Art Wallace. Art Wallace may be familiar to Star Trek fans because he co-wrote Assignment Earth, the last episode of the second season with Gene Roddenberry himself. That was supposed to be a pilot for another series. Art Wallace also did other TV shows like The Doctors and the Nurses. For the People, starring William Shatner, right before he got the gig for Star Trek, Dark Shadows, the Planet of the Apes TV series, and Space 1999. But Wallace's story outline came in on May 19, 1967. He did quite a few rewrites until his revised second draft teleplay came in on August 29th. Gene Kuhn did his rewrite on September 6th. And Ralph and Steve, as you know now, because we talked about this, that date of September 6th means that this is probably one of the last teleplays that Gene Kuhn worked on before he left the series. So then Gene Roddenberry came in, did his revised final draft teleplay on October 4th, and there were page revisions that came in from John Meredith Lucas October 5th through October 12th, which means that he was revising pages while the episode was being filmed. The episode was filmed. Between October 9th and the 16th, 1967, it shot for six days, so Ralph brought it in right on schedule. It was the 47th episode to film, but it was the 42nd episode to air. They moved this one up early because they knew that this was going to be a good story that the fans were going to love, and they did when it finally aired on December 15th, 1967. As for the cost... So here's the beauty of it. So by this point, you know, Ralph and Steve, we, we talked about how the, <laughs> as the series went on, the budgets kept going down. And by this point, you know, in the sort of the mid to late second season, the per episode budget was around $180,000 to $182,500. But the cost of this episode, the final cost, was $170,871. So Ralph brought this in way under budget by more than $12,000. The score was tracked and the visual effects were done by the Westheimer company. But Steve, my question for you, as always on Enterprise Incidents, is like, uh, what is it that you loved all these years about Obsession? Well, it's funny. You you know, we've talked about that there are these shows before you and I were making this show that we maybe didn't watch so often. And there were other shows that we would watch again and again and again. Obsession is one I've always has always been in the rotation. I've never understood why it doesn't seem to get the love that it really deserves, because I think it's a really great episode. And the thing to answer your question that draws me to it is the character of Captain Kirk and that and what he goes through. And I think you see both his flaws in his character and the greatness of his character in this episode. Absolutely. And of course, why is that? Because William Shatner delivers a tour de force performance in this episode, not unlike the tour de force performance he gave in metamorphosis, which was also directed by Ralph Sinensky. And I'm with you, Steve. I've always, always loved this episode. This is one that I've, that I've gone back to time and time and time again. Uh, and 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 even so, having said that, because, you know, Ralph and Steve, even though I watched this one again pretty recently, before we even started to get into uh, doing our deep dive with this, I still found new things that I really loved about it. 
and new things that I discovered about it. Uh, and of course, the, one of the things that I always loved, in addition to just being a great Kirk story, and also it has some really, really great moments between Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And, you know, I, I can't wait to talk about this one particular scene that I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But also because, let's face it, the Moby Dick allegory, you know, that has been done on Star Trek has done so many times and it's been done really well every time. And we talked about the Doomsday Machine, Steve. And when we talked about Doomsday Machine, we said this is uh, we're going to see part of this with Kirk coming up in Obsession. And here we are. But of course, also Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. Moby Dick in Space, Star Trek First Contact with Patrick Stewart, you know, and the next gen cast, also Moby Dick in Space. This is a tense and exciting episode. Uh, I, I really uh, can't wait to hear how you shot the cloud, especially when you're using a real cloud, because, you know, those things don't take direction well. Um, but uh, this is uh, definitely one that, uh, uh, you know, so much about it that's just going to be for a great conversation. Right, Steve? Absolutely. Um, would you like to know some of the things going on in the world? Absolutely. At this time, <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't the hugest of weeks, but some very important things did happen. As you said, it was filmed between October 9th and October sixteenth of nineteen sixty seven. Well, on October eighth, the day before it started shooting, Che Guevara was captured in Bolivia. This is obviously a hugely controversial figure uh, to this day, uh, and on the same day. Uh, the Democratic National Committee voted to hold the 1968 convention in Chicago. Oh, boy. And that is a decision that is going to have real, real consequences down the line. And October 9th, Che Guevara was executed in Bolivia. He was shot nine times by a semi-automatic rifle. And the reason they did it that way was they wanted to make it look like he was killed in battle and not executed. On the same day, a huge, huge cyclo touchdown in India, killing 531 people and left almost a million people homeless. Oh, wow. Here's one. Uh, on the same day, Joseph Pilates died. Any guesses on what Joseph Pilates did? Uh, created uh, the exercise, Pilates? <laughs> exactly. I never knew it was actually named after a person. Uh, me uh, On the 10th, the Outer Space Treaty was passed, which said that we would never put nuclear weapons or any military bases in space, and no single country would claim the moon or any other celestial bodies. You know, what's interesting about that is in the 80s, when Reagan was doing Star Wars, mm -hmm. didn't that kind of just like, you know, you know, who cares about the Oregonian Peace Treaty kind of thing? <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. Well, and today we have a Space Force. Yes, there you go. <laughs> and I think that's it that happened when this episode was filmed. You know, compared to some of the episodes we talked about recently, Steve, I'd say this is a uh, this is a breather. <laughs> it's a mild week. Uh, shall we get obsessed? Yes, Ralph, are you ready to get obsessed? I'm obsessed already. Our scanner survey was correct, Captain. There it is, pure tritanium. So this is something that I I never knew until I was watching this episode when I was doing it, when I do, when I prep for these deep dives, gentlemen, I started watching the episode with the, with the, with the subtitles on because sometimes I, I, I miss things. So the name of this planet that we're starting off on, which I never knew after all these decades, is called Argus 10. Hmm. Didn't know that. <laughs> so there you go. Interesting. Um, and this is, going to be not at all important in the show, but it's some sort of mineral that's valuable. We're going to get some, but while we're talking about that, and Mr. Leslie is coming over to pick up this piece of tritanium, 
we start to see some smoke. I, I think we'll probably ask you this question a bunch, but what, how do you film the creature? How do you film smoke like this? A bee smoker. So you have the smoker, and to get it moving directionally? Like, because sometimes it seems to really, really follow your orders. And using the bee smoker, we used it in this scene. We had the shot first shooting down on top of it, and it was just moving forward. And then uh, there was another shot from, from below where you saw it coming over. Right. And you just aim the camera at the spot, and then the guy with the bee smoker is is out of sight, and he just pumps it in. Uh, what I always wondered was when you had to shoot the scenes where you're using the bee smoker, and then you did a you know your cut. Okay, if you wanted to do another take of it, did you have to like you know wait a while for the smoke to dissipate so no, you could? No, there, there wasn't that much. That that never happened. And then, of course, in this first scene. We saw, we saw this, the cloud go back in. We just ran, did the film in reverse. Yeah, right. it's a great effect, by the way, when it goes in reverse like that. Yeah. And then that is the moment that Kirk smells something. Did you smell that? A sweet odor like honey. And then what happens is so interesting because you see something come over Kirk that is so unexpected. It's clear that he's having a strong feeling, a memory, because he says, It was years ago. On another planet, a thing with a an odor like that. And, and what's great about this from the outset is how immediately Kirk is startled by the scent that he recognizes. And the way he is startled, it is clearly bringing back, even though he's not exactly sure what it is yet, it is clearly bringing back something that is extremely unpleasant for him. And then we find out pretty soon how unpleasant it is. And you know, Ralph, regarding Shatner's performance in this episode, uh, how how happy were you overall with, with Shatner's commitment uh, to his performance in this episode? I liked his performance in this. The, the one I didn't like is coming up. <laughs> okay. Um, and, uh, and, of course, Spock is just like, oh, it's probably pollen or something like that. And Kirk does something completely unexpected, which is he calls over security, including someone named Rizzo, who we haven't met before, I don't think. Uh, you kind of did, Steve. <laughs> you ready for this? Steve, I like you. You're not sure if you met him, but Steve, that is because you did meet him uh, when his name was Ensign O'Herlihy, and uh. he was the guy who got zapped in Arena. Remember when he goes, uh. Captain, I see something, and then he just like disappears. So he he died in that episode, but uh, this is not the first time, by the way, that we're going to see a red shirt die and then come back uh, played by the same actor. Uh, and uh, so, so, but just in case people might have looked, you know, noticed that he looks a little familiar, he did dye his hair a little lighter, like that really made a difference. And despite what Spock said about Paul and Kirk is immediately on to something really serious. He says, he tells them to make a swing around our perimeter, scan for dichronium in the atmosphere, whatever that is, set your phasers on disruptor B. If you see any gaseous cloud, Fire immediately. You're on red alert. So the situation went from being just a routine mission for the Tritanium. Right. Then as soon as we smelled this, uh, you know, had to sense out this dichronium, which all we know is that it, lives, it exists only in laboratory experiments is what Spock says. But the situation escalated very, very quickly. And, and, I, and I love that Shatner is, or rather Kirk, like is, 
he, he just knows when to flip the switch and and go into into alert. Uh, you know, he was very laid back at the first few moments of the episode, and now he's like very driven. Right. One of the things that gets talked about a lot in this episode is intuition, is that a captain has to use his intuition. And this is certainly a moment that without hesitation, he goes full on like this is a dangerous situation. And of course, he's despite the fact that he's shook, he's absolutely right. The last time I caught an odor like that was 11 years ago. We're off with our security guys who are scanning. Seemed to read Diconium for a minute and then I lost it. It's almost like something out there knows I'm scanning. And Ralph, you do a thing here that I've seen you now do many times before, which is you have our characters framed in a triangle, and then you stay with Rizzo as he as he moves forward into a single. I love that setup of a shot. Well, then, and then what I did in that shot with the three of them, and as you saw the three, and he's talking about this creature, and I think he says something to the effect that it changes shape. And then you see it come in over the rock, and then Rizzo walks over. So he's singled, and we lose that when he looks back and sees the cloud attacking the two men. It's different because, and the shape has changed because that was done at the special effects. That was done at the Westheimer Company. And what's interesting, what is absolutely worth noting here, Steve and Ralph, is that here is an episode where you have a cloud. In Metamorphosis, you had an episode that dealt with a cloud. Both of them were intelligent. Both of them had very, very different motives. Yes. And the, uh, the 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 cloud in Metamorphosis was this beautiful color, you know, to to sort of capture that the, the love that 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 it was emanating. And this is just you know a white cloud, deadly. And, uh, and, and again, uh, another, both of these episodes were directed by Ralph. So I was, um, the, cl- I was the cloud director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that cloud descends on the guys who immediately start to choke, which also is kind of similar to something that happens in Metamorphosis. Yes. And Rizzo turns, he does not fire. Kirk here. Captain, strange clouds hurt. Just as he's talking, the cloud gets to him wow. and he starts to choke. That was a separate cut. Cut away to the two guys, then it came back, and the cloud was already over. How was it working with with the actor who played Ritzo? He was fine, and I used him again thirteen years later in uh, the Dynasty pilot. Oh, oh yeah, cool. There you go. <laughs> Kirk and Spock run to go help, and then we're in this great top down shot where you see the three red guys down. Two of them, their faces very, very gray, and you know that they're dead. No, the and- faces were white. White. white, they're white, and so R- Ralph, tell us about that that uh, crane shot of uh, that was a crane shot. We just put the camera up on that hanging platform and shot down with an Aeroflex. It's so great! It's such a great visual to see Spock and Kirk come into the shot, and the three guys are are lying there. Rizzo, see, Rizzo is gray. The other two guys are white because the, those white guys are are dead, and one of those guys. It's played by Eddie Paskey. Yes. And yeah. Eddie Paskey was uh, Mr. Leslie uh, in many, many episodes of Star Trek. You see him in the background a lot because, for one thing, he was he was often used as a stand-in for William Shatner. And, and Steve, you know, going back to Mudd's women, he had a different name. They, you know, McCoy called them hunters. But Ralph, 
directed him previously in this side of paradise because Eddie Paskey was the security guy waiting outside the transporter mm. room when Kirk said, get back to your stations. This is mutiny, mister. Yes, sir. It is. So Ralph gave him uh, some lines and then he killed him. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you think you know what it was, Captain? Something that can't possibly exist, but it does. Great teaser. Well, and what I like about it too, there's a there's a theory about stories or films that all stories are mysteries. And that part of why you're staying watching is to find out what happens. What does this mean? What is this about? And this episode of Star Trek does a great job of of teasing this mystery. What is this thing? Absolutely it does. And and I think Ralph, I read somewhere that that was something that you pointed out. Uh, it, it might have been in, in, in Mark Cushman's book or it might have been in one of the other, other interviews I read uh, of yours where you said that that is what makes obsession go beyond beyond just being a Moby Dick in space story because it is also a mystery. So, Steve, you are absolutely right. <laughs> and I think I also said, but it was a mystery, but it moved from being a whodunit to a what isn't. That's, that was the interview. How's <laughs> Ensign Rizzo? Still unconscious, sir. Transfusions? Continuing as rapidly as possible. His blood count is still 60% less than normal. And that is one of the scenes I think that John Meredith Lucas filmed. So when when that happened, when John Meredith Lucas filmed the, the scenes because you were you had to leave for Yom Kippur, did you go back and review the scenes that he filmed or did you just so, you know? Well, I'm, sure, I'm sure I showed him my script because I had those scenes all blocked out. And I I, see. I'm sure that I showed him the blocking. Ready to leave orbit, Captain. Hold your position. And this is where we find out one of the subplots, which is there's the USS Yorktown is waiting for some vaccines. It's not the first time that Scotty is going to bring up that we need to rendezvous with the Yorktown. And uh, McCoy has backing uh, Scotty by saying those vaccines are highly perishable on the planet Theta-7. Gentlemen, we are remaining in orbit until I find out more about those deaths on my responsibility. I'm perfectly aware that it might cost lives on Theta-7, Kirkout. So right now, we're taking the, whatever this is, is very, very serious. There isn't a red corpuscle left in their bodies. Marks, cuts, incisions of any kind? Not a one. What happened is medically impossible. And that the, what's, what's great about this episode, one of the things that's great about this episode, and Steve and I, you've talked about this in other episodes, is how they keep little by little revealing new information. I suggest you look at the record tapes of past similar occurrences. You'll find the USS Farragut lists casualties 11 years ago from exactly the same impossible causes. Now, he does not say why he knows this yet. Let me ask this question. Why does Kirk not right from the beginning say, okay, here's what happened. I was a lieutenant on this ship and we got attacked by this thing. And this is, why does he not tell them everything? Why do you think, Ralph? Because it's better drama not to. I 100% agree it is better drama, but I also think there's a good reason, which is he is totally going on a hunch. This is a this is an instinctual thing, and I think part of him is going, I want these guys to look at the facts before I say anything so that they can come up with their own – that I'm not going to uh, warp their perspectives by giving them my opinion too early. Thank you, Captain. I'll check those tapes immediately. I also – I agree with that. 100 percent 
And I also agree that because he is going on a hunch, he wants to make sure that whether it's it's he himself or Spock and McCoy who who support him with with the facts that and then he'll obviously be able to make an informed decision about all this. But he the, he he even states that uh, intuition is an absolute trait of uh, of being an effective starship captain. So that's what he's doing. Well, and the other reason I think is this is a painful thing for him. You know, this is not he doesn't necessarily want to share this particular vulnerability, even with his best friends. Uh, And now we ask if we can bring Rizzo to consciousness. And I think this is very interesting because Kirk asks if that will hurt him. And McCoy says, in his present condition, I don't think it would make much difference. What does that mean, do you think? Uh, I think that he's in so much pain as it is. Uh, Oh, you know what? That's a great question, Steve. I think that McCoy knows that he's he's not going to make it. Yeah, that's what I think, too. He's a corner. Uh, yeah. And if you look at Chapel, when they say, give him one cc of cortisine, she has a reaction because she goes, she knows that's not going to help him. You know, that's not. And then you can see her process that same idea. Oh, he's not going to make it. Good reaction. Good and reaction. It's a great reaction, the way she like skips a beat. So cortisine, as you know, was the drug that cured Sulu really quickly in the beginning of the city on the edge of forever. And just a few seconds later, it is the same drug that the overdose of which made Dr. McCoy go mad, go back in time and change all of history. Yeah. So you got to be careful with that stuff. And uh, and we have Kirk with Rizzo, who slowly regains some level of consciousness. And I think this scene is really interesting, partially for how emotionally intense Kirk is as he's asking these questions. But he's really intense. intense. And the shot across Rizzo to Kirk with that red wall background, mm-hmm. Jerry was, because the scene was intense, but quietly intense, he's brought color into it to give it oomph. I have to say that rewatching this episode, Ralph, I noticed more than I ever did before, like so many other things <laughs> uh, during this uh, journey through Enterprise Incidents, Jerry Finnerman's cinematography, you know, we have talked about this endlessly on other episodes, Steve, and we talked about this specifically with Metamorphosis, which I still think is just the, the best looking episode of the original series. But Finnerman's cinematography in this episode in particular was a particular standout. So what was it like working with him on this episode? And what was his motive for for, for the really dramatic lighting that we see throughout the course of Obsession? I just think it was Jerry working with me, and we 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 never we never spoke about it. I just staged it, and he lit it, and it was like we were melded together, and we didn't have to talk about it. Wow! And 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 that goes back to something years before when when I was on staff of Playhouse ninety, and the year that I was a secretary, and one day I had to take new script new script pages down to the rehearsal hall. And I took them in, and Robert Robert Alda and Fielder Cook were having an intense discussion off one part of the rehearsal hall about uh, the motivation. The rest of the cast was seated at as a table, and as I laid the pages down on the table, I heard Patricia Neal shake her head and say, I don't know, I just do it. Hmm. Mm, that's awesome. And, and that, that, that was the way Jerry and I worked. We didn't have to talk. We just did it. 
That, that's amazing because that's such a can be such a complicated relationship between a director and a cinematographer. And usually there's a lot of talk. And the fact that you were so in sync is kind of amazing. Yeah. Right. So you remember a sickly sweet odor. Did you smell it? Yes. Yes. A smell. Strange smell. It was like, like, like being smothered in honey. He's not just recalling the smell. He's it's making him uh, uh, agitated. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's scaring him. It's upsetting him. It's uh, obviously more than just, oh, yeah, I remember the smell like like it's I mean, he's associating it with the the, his pain. Right. And the other question that Kirk asks is, did you feel a presence and intelligence? And this is one of the odd threads through the whole episode. And I kind of go back and forth about how I feel about it. But definitely Kirk believes that he had some telepathic contact with this creature. Rizzo says, I felt it was, it was, and then that's it for him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that I really appreciated about Shatner's performance is that while the episode is progressing and we're getting a little more info, but at the same time, we see Shatner's intensity escalate gradually. The difference between when he first smells the, the 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 odor on the planet to like when they're chasing after the thing at the you know warp eight is it's a gradual slope. You know, it's not like a light switch where he just suddenly becomes so so obsessive. Like he's not there yet, but he's getting there. He's not, he's certainly not at the level of where Matt Decker was in the Doomsday Machine. And the thing too, I think, is that when it actually happened, there was the guilt that he had not fired and that he was responsible. And he hadn't really delved into all of this backup theories that are starting to come now later, 11 years later, because it's happening again, and now he's starting to try to put two and two together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I wouldn't depend too much on what he says in that half-conscious state. He could be dreaming, saying what he thought he wanted you to hear. You check those record tapes. I want your medical analysis as quickly as possible. And he just bolts out the door and just, just follow your orders, basically, is what he's yeah. saying. Well, what's with the captain? I've never seen him like that before. I intend to find out. I'll be in the medical record library. Up on the bridge... There's a message from Starfleet, which he ignores. He asked Spock what what readings he's getting, who's not getting any readings. And Kirk, again, these little clues. Let's assume that it's something so completely different that our sensors would not identify it as a life form. You mentioned dichironium, Captain. Suppose it was composed of that rare element. I have scanned for that element, Captain. There is no trace of dichironium on the planet's surface or in the atmosphere. Suppose it camouflaged itself so he is on to this thing one might almost say obsessed um (laughs) uh, and now we have the next assumption let's assume that it's intelligent that it knows that we're looking for it you know steve this this goes back to something you and i have talked about a lot not only just the sense of kirk the observer but because this is based on a very unpleasant memory uh a memory where a lot of people died uh, this is not the first time that Kirk has had an experience where he witnessed the deaths of many, many people, though this is the one where he feels responsible for it. So that that's the cause of, of his escalating obsession. But 
you know, we talked before about how how Kirk and Spock will always sort of complete each other's sentences and 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 complement each other with with the intelligence. But Kirk has the edge here this time because he's talking from experience that an experience that Spock does not yet have to hide from a sensor scan. It would have to be able to change its molecular structure like gold changing itself to lead or wood changing itself to ivory. And that gives Kirk an idea. And he tells Spock, again, he doesn't tell Spock what he's thinking, but he does tell him. It may provide some answers to a tape record, which I think you'll find Dr. McCoy is looking at this very moment. So now he's sending his other top person off to read (laughs) this record. And at that moment, there is a new person on the bridge. Yes. And he is staying there. He's wearing a red shirt. His name yeah, is he comes Ent- in through the elevator. He comes in through the turbo lift. And his it name would- is Ent- Ensign Garavik. And he is played by Stephen Brooks. And this is usually the part where I say his credits. But Ralph, you have worked with Stephen Brooks so many times. Why don't you tell us? Why don't you tell us his credits? <laughs> well, this was the 14th time. I oh, wow. The first four years earlier when he was a, a regular on The Nurses in New York. And we did two shows, one of them, The Intern Syndrome, which where he was really featured, and it, it was his show. Then uh, in 1965, he was signed uh, as Ephraim Zimbalist, the second man, <laughs> and on, on the FBI. And I did uh, 11 shows with him there. Wow. And then, and I asked for him for this, and uh, I I got him. You, you, so you you asked for Stephen oh, Brooks oh, for obsession. Yes. Oh, oh well, that he must have been like, thanks. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh yeah, no, we 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 had a good work, working relationship. Oh, that's great. Well, and one of the great subtle choices is when he shows up out of that turbo lift. The music that's playing is the Star Trek theme, and that just really clicks in that this guy is like Captain Kirk. I never noticed that. Excellent, excellent point, Steve. Ensign Garavik reporting, sir. Are you the new security officer? Yes, sir. Was your father? Uh, yes, sir, he was, but I don't expect any special treatment on that account. You'll get none aboard this ship, mister. Can I talk about this scene? Because this this is one scene that I wish had been written differently. It's all you. And I wish that there had been a different scene there to establish a contact between them. When, so that when he says, I don't expect any special attention, and Kirk could say, and this will be bad dialogue, but something to the effect of, I remember you, you came on as when you were very young uh, on a test flight with your father. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And Gervik says, I was 13. Wow. Kirk then could say, and I remember that you asked a lot of questions. And Gervik could say, Yes, and I remember that you were very kind and gave me a lot of good answers. And he, it establishes that Kirk to him is like his father was to Kirk. I think that's a really cool idea. I also think there's one element, sometimes you just have to ignore a thing, is does Garavik know how his dad died? Does Garavik know that that Kirk was... Was it was meaning well, the even station that, that, that a gaseous thing took all the red corpuscles out of his body? I mean, he, he, he if, if Garavik was 13 when this happened, which is about what he was, 
he probably would know something about this and that would have affected his behavior throughout this whole episode. But it seems as if he doesn't know anything about it. Uh, I disagree because uh, to begin with, if it was 11 years ago and, Kurt, and Garavik is literally well into his 20s so that he, he would have been there. But the whole, there, there was never any blame to Kirk right. for that. The official decision was that it, he he was not responsible. So so because he wasn't held responsible, I'm gonna I've I've gone with the you know the the notion that Garavik knew how his father died. I mean, of course, if he's going to be in Starfleet, he's going to pursue a career in Starfleet. And his father was the captain of a starship. He's going to know how he died, but he might not know that Kirk was there when it happened. Well, what what I what I'm saying it's not just about Kirk. It's also there is literally no mention anywhere in the whole show of that's the thing that killed my dad. Right. You know, right. And I think it's just, this bears not, don't think about it because (laughs) it it would have been a different thing if they had had that included. Yeah. You knew Rizzo? Yes, sir. We were good friends. You'll get a crack at what killed him. Interested? Yes, I am, sir. Now, the interesting thing about, about what we were just talking about, it just hit me. That would have been a really poignant scene to establish the connection between Kirk and Garavik. I mean, absolutely, it would have given the the episode, the story, much more personal stakes. I completely agree with that. But instead, what happens is when Garavik says, uh, yeah, but I don't need you to give me any special treatment, Kirk just looks away from him and says, you'll get none aboard this ship, mister. I wish and, he hadn't said that. Yeah, I, I wish he hadn't said it too, uh, because it, you know, in, in some ways, the, you know, Kirk is seeing himself in Garavik, but right. instead of making it personal and, and bringing him in, he's he's looking at that uh, and, and pushing him away. Oh, absolutely. You know what I would have done if I was writing this? Um, obviously, the, the, the episode this is most connected to is The Conscience of the King. I mean, it's, they're both such um, Kirk has guilt and he's dealing with a lot of emotional stuff from his past is that I would have done with Garavik what they did with Riley, which is that Kirk makes the choice not to tell Garavik, and then some point in the course of the episode, maybe when he comes up on the bridge saying, I want to be back on duty, he finds out that this is what killed his dad. And that Kirk was on duty when it happens. Yeah. I, I, I think that's overloading. <laughs> I, I just, so, you know, you, you can try to add all of these things in but eventually you have to get to the place where you want your plot to move and keep building and hit its climaxes and you can overload and get stuff in the way now one thing about the earlier versions of the story is that Rizzo was supposed to be the prominent character in that he survived the attack and at that point Bob Justman said wait a minute let's get rid of Rizzo and let's make Chekhov the main character, which, you know, to have Chekhov be like basically what, what Garavik is would have been great. But you wouldn't have had that connection where where Kirk, uh, you know, served under his father. So right. uh, it was actually Gene Roddenberry, uh, his idea to make this this other character, the son of, Fer- of Kirk's former commander uh, that he also sees himself in. So, uh, you know, Steve and I, we've talked so many times about some of the great ideas that Roddenberry had. This is one of them. Yes. 
Um, so we beam down. It's Kirk, Garavik, and three other uh, red guys, and we get a dichronium <laughs> reading, and we split up with Garavik taking two men circling around to the left. He's obviously nervous, and man, we see that creature coming in behind him right away. He sees it, he hesitates, and the creature goes for his men, and then he fires. And then he fires, and he only pauses for just a, a, a split second. Split second. And then Kirk hears the phaser fire, and he uh, doubles back, but it's too late. One of the red shirts is is dead. The other is uh, looks like he's still alive and in critical condition. And Garavik is shocked. Kirk is just – this is what tips the scales for uh, leaning into Kirk's obsession, and he holds his phaser up to his face. And, Which uh, seems dangerous to me, by the way. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would do that either. Um, but uh, it, it's a it's a great moment, and I and I just think that this episode really has a lot of action, a lot of intensity, and but it, the, the character and the emotion is still at the forefront, and that's what makes this episode really special. And you di- and you did, Ralph, at the end of this scene when Kirk is running up, you did a long handheld, uh, and I was wondering why you what what was the reasoning behind doing that handheld shot. Because I wanted to do a move in, and the dolly, because of the dirt floor, couldn't have done it. And uh, I just liked, I, I, I use that kind of a shot a lot for to use the Aeroflex, which is very light, and then just walk it in. So it's a moving point of view. Well, and I, I think it gives a, it a more energetic and emotional feeling because it's handheld well, rather yeah, than a dolly. Absolutely. Yeah. Steve, uh, Steve I, not, I noticed something. Yeah. I noticed something that, that, you know, we're only at the end of Act One. You know, we, we're, we're just kind of been hinting that this thing may be intelligent. But all this time at this point, you have referred to this thing as the creature. And in my notes, I'm still calling it the cloud. But you, from the beginning, have been referring to this as the creature. And and I got to say uh, that I, I completely agree. I think that, that's great that you are, are, are calling it what it is from the top. It's funny. Uh, one of the things on the cinephiles that we do is we ruin every movie. So if ever there's a surprise, <laughs> we always say it at the beginning because it's kind of interesting sometimes to to look at the mystery from already knowing the answer. Yeah. Act two, we are back in sick bay, and again we hear a captain's log: another person dead, another person in critical. I am now even more convinced that this is not only an intelligent creature. But the same which decimated the crew of the USS Farragut 11 years ago in another part of the galaxy. Okay, now we've gotten our first piece of information. Uh, And this is the first mention of it being a creature. Both Spock and McCoy are doubtful of this, and I sense they also doubt my decision to stay and fight the thing. Why am I keeping the ship here? It's at this point during Obsession where, like you, Steve, I started thinking about the conscience of the king. Because just like in The Conscience of the King, Kirk was putting his ship and his crew in jeopardy, uh, risking the lives of his crew and putting his own command on the line. And it's how – okay, I kind of had this question a little bit later. But Steve, I want to ask you, how is this similar to The Conscience of the King and how is it different? Well, the first one is one that you already pointed out, which is that while he had trauma from what happened uh, with Kodos the Executioner, he wasn't responsible. Here, he feels responsible. Right. 
Um, that's that's one of the really big differences. Also, the stakes are actually much, much higher. We don't know how many vaccines there are that are that are at the Yorktown or how many lives we're talking about being in the balance. There was only a couple of lives in the balance when it came to the conscience of the king. So that's a difference. And I also think Spock and McCoy have evolved their relationship a lot. And but by the time we get to here, that's another difference. But I get the feeling that there's another one that you're thinking about. With Kodos, there wasn't the threat of a of of fur, of more people dying. I mean, it was really just like like it, him and it, Riley, it, yeah. it, right? Okay, right, exactly. That's okay. It. Compared to the potential for as this as this creature, as you refer to it correctly, uh, keeps going around, and clearly it can move very very fast through space. And once it multiplies, I mean, you're talking about about death and destruction. Uh, throughout the galaxy, on the level of what the planet killer was able would have been able to do yeah. in in the Doomsday Machine, so there's that. But uh, I think that because in Conscience of the King, Kirk is driven by revenge. In Obsession, he's clearly driven by by overpowering guilt. Yes, I agree. Guilt, but it's also the, the awareness because of the guilt, the slowly dawning awareness that. This is a killer, and that it it needs to be destroyed, just just like Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that was that was revenge because Ahab had lost his leg to the to the whale. This is not revenge, but it's also an awareness of the danger if this if this indeed is a killing creature, as he's at this point still only suspects. Well, let me ask you a question. The, the fact that, you know, Moby Dick was a big white whale and the creature here is a big white cloud. Yeah. Was was there a conscious decision to make the cloud white like Moby Dick or was it just a coincidence? I, 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 I'm, I'm sure it was white because they knew they were doing Moby Dick. Wow. They, um, they, they knew they were doing Moby Dick. Moby Dick. You know, it's funny. Uh, and maybe this just says a lot about me, but I prefer every single Star Trek version of Moby Dick to the actual book Moby Dick, <laughs> which I've, <laughs> I've read twice to go like, did I really admit? This is not a book that I love at all. <laughs> what distance were you from the creature? About 20 yards, sir. You fired at a large hovering target at that distance and missed. And Garavik starts to almost lie. Yes. Uh, well, I didn't fire while I was hovering, sir. And Kirk, in a very uncharacteristic way, comes at him really hard. You mean you froze? No, sir, I didn't exactly freeze. Well, what exactly were you doing? Well, I was startled for a second. And you see, again, it's a great reaction shot that you cut to, Ralph, of McCoy noticing that Kirk's behavior is not normal. Do you have any further information? No, sir. You don't have any further questions. And now Spock is noticing that Kirk is acting strangely. What's interesting is that in earlier versions of Obsession, there was criticism about the, the what what's the outline or one of the earlier versions of the teleplay that that Kirk was being too unlikable. And at this moment, at this moment where Kirk is really coming down hard on Garavik, uh, I don't, I mean, I, I think he is being unlikable. I think he is coming down too hard on Garavik. Uh, so I, I can't, I can't even begin to imagine uh, what Kirk was like in the earlier versions. Also, that that scene was staged really like a trial. Yeah, totally. The the whole opening, that's a wide shot. He, he's just alone in the room. They come in, and then for 
the whole first part of it, it's a three shot against Garavik, who's on trial. And then when Kirk really starts to question, it's just the two. And they're not close ups. They're medium shots of everybody in that room. What, why why yeah. not have the close ups? Why do the medium shots? I can't give a reason except that's the way it, it felt. I just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just felt it should be that way. Well, intuition is a well-recognized director's prerogative. That's not intuition. That's You have to be careful that you don't go into close-ups too soon. I mean, if you start going into close-ups now in the second act, tight close-ups, you're not going to have anything for your fourth act. Excellent point. And also, by having the medium shots, uh, you're really able to see and the work. And you're of, also seeing the bodies. And the, and the work of Finnerman, the moody lighting you know, against the bulkheads. Yes, yes. And and again, what Jerry did, I mean, because he was lighting the walls of the Enterprise differently. And the, the close-ups are real, you know, the medium shots of the guys, I just think are stunning portraits. I agree completely. Now, when you were filming that scene in the briefing room, uh, I know at times you were filming up to 10 pages a day. <laughs> that was a normal day. Wow. When you were doing the the, the single shots, were, were they all in the room or did... You know, so they go back to their trailers while. Oh, no, 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 just sit there. And, and you, you get it done. Yeah, that was, I think I, I counted them. There were there were eight setups in that shot. Eight setups. Wow. Amazing. Then Garavik kind of tries to apologize. Yes. I, uh, I only hesitated for a moment, sir. I'm sorry. Ensign, you're relieved of all duties and confined to quarters. Until further notice. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I think Stephen Brooks is terrific in this episode. I, I feel agree. like, and he's wonderful in that in this scene. He's fantastic in this scene because he he's he's showing the 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 uh, the change of his uh, tone of his of his delivery, and there are subtle shifts, and he's effective but not over the top. He's he's a uh, right on point. The uh, you know it's a restrained performance, but extremely effective. Absolutely. And McCoy and Spock are frankly shocked. You were a little hard on the boy, Jack. He froze. One man was killed. Another may die. And Spock starts to say something, and Kirk cuts him off. Scientifically. You'll both be filing reports. Make your comments and recommendations. And he walks out on them. There's definitely some stuff going on with our Captain Kirk. No question about it. Has there been, Steve, another episode where we see... Kirk, uh, just 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 approaching this. I mean, obviously, conscience of the king. But even in conscience of the king, he I, I felt like he was he was in control. I never felt like he was he he was uh, a crossing crossing a line. He was overstepping his bounds. Uh, he didn't do that in conscience of the king. I feel like he he pushes it here. Yeah, I I think this is much a much stronger and more personal reaction than Conscience of the King. I think he is much less in control. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are moments like in Corbin Knight where he says, "Anytime you can bluff me, Doctor," where he kind of lashes out a little bit. But that's not what this is. This is sustained, and this is fairly intense yep. because he's obsessed, obsessed, yes. and getting more obsessed by the moment. Uh, and well, that's the point. That's the point of it. Yep, that's, that's the point of the whole arc of his performance. And of the role. We're on the bridge, and Scotty comes in to tell us a tiny little... Aren't we missing a shot of oh, Garrett right. coming back into his room? I did miss it. This uh, is why <laughs> Ralph Sinetsky is our is our host. He's our host. <laughs> and, so, and incidentally, 
uh, Jerry lit his room with purple walls, which is calming. Oh, uh, interesting. Which is a calming. It's, it's it's different than the red wall in the hospital room with Rizzo. And, um, and the, the green walls in the... And uh, the green walls. In the, in the briefing room. The mm-hmm. one coming up, a green and red wall. Th- this and goes back to something we said competing. from the beginning, which is Star Trek is not realism. The, you know, these colors are not realistic. They are emotional. Well, and when I started thousands of years ago at the Playhouse, <laughs> we, we, there were phrases and terms used that aren't around anymore. And at that time, there was... And this this was in terms of theater stage performances, that there was naturalism and realism. Naturalism is like you're filming a documentary. Realism is to take all the facts and rearrange them so that they're still real, but they're dramatic. And I, I don't like to call it theatrical because it's still realism. It's just what realism in theater should be. Sure. Well, what it, but what I mean is like there are many times you're in a play and the lights will shift color to, to represent emotionally what's going on. And that's oh, very much what's happening here. Um, now we're on the bridge. <laughs> and now you can go to, you go to the bridge now. Thank, thank you, sir. Report to uh, the bridge. So we're moving on to the bridge. Um, so now we're on the bridge and Scotty comes to tell us a plot point, which is that he's cleaning out the radioactive vents. That's something that's going to come up later. Again, we bring up the Yorktown. The medicine for Theta 7 colony is not only needed desperately, it has a limited stability. I'm aware of the situation, engineer, and I'm getting a little tired of my senior officers conspiring against me. And this is just like the previous episode, Steve, in, in a private little war where basically his senior officers on the bridge were doing their jobs and collaborating. And Kirk says, I did not invite a debate. So this is the second time in two episodes where Kirk has snapped at his superior officers or, or, or you know, senior officers. What, what's really great about this and this whole episode and Star Trek in general is Star <laughs> Trek is not afraid to have its characters, even its heroic characters, be flawed. And you, you see not only the reaction that goes around the bridge, but you see Shatner's process the beat and Kirk's reaction and say, Forgive me. Perhaps I shouldn't have used the word conspire. Agreed, sir. I don't find that finding the characters flawed. I find that that's finding the characters human. Agreed. And now he goes over to Chekhov. And at first he's just asking, you know, your normal questions of someone at the science station. And then he keeps asking questions. And you can see, I love Walter Koenig's performance as you see him look to the side, yep. like this is getting weird. And why are you keep asking me this? Don't, cause I'm a competent officer. I don't understand why you're asking this this way. It's a great touch. Walter Koenig played that so great the way when Kirk was like drilling him, you know, and, and, and Chekhov like looks off, like, like he's like looking at a horror going like, geez, what's, what's up with him? Yeah. Right. And uh, it's, it's so And I just also like how, you know, we, we've now seen, Chekhov do double duty from being, you know, a navigator to going to the science station. Of course, the first time we saw him at all in season two was at the science station in Catspaw. But then in, in you know, remember Stephen Journey to Babel, uh, we see him go from navigator to science station back to navigator right. again. So he's doing a lot and he's probably like 
really, I think he's feeling pretty confident that at this point of his, of his time on the bridge. And he's uh, definitely taken aback by, by the way Kirk is, is talking to him. We've run a full scanner probe twice. Well, then run it 20 times if that's what it takes. And he storms off the bridge. In the lab, Spock comes in and says, I hope I'm not disturbing you, doctor. Interrupting another autopsy report is no disturbance, Mr. Spock. It's a relief. I love this scene. I just, this is a fantastic scene. I need your advice. I love McCoy's response. He looks at him, his eyes a little wide, and says, Then I need a drink. <laughs> That's the levity. This is the relationship between Spock and McCoy. And the thing is, Spock is going to McCoy for advice. And it's it's a little different but still worth drawing the comparison to when Spock seeks McCoy for Kirk's actions in the conscience of the king. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting to me too is we just did Bread and Circuses a little while ago, and that evolved their relationships. And I, and in some ways, I feel like you see that here. You see that they're a little bit further along. For better or worse. <laughs> there are many aspects of human irrationality I do not yet comprehend. Obsession, for one. Now, now let me ask you a question. He, he, he's, he still doesn't get it, but he experienced it. First in Conscience of the King with Kirk, but clearly in the Doomsday Machine with uh, Matt Decker. Why is it different for Spock this time? What, what is it about, about Kirk's obsession this time that that is different from what he already experienced in these previous two adventures. I'll I'll give you my answer, which is I think that Spock has evolved. I think Spock in Galileo 7 did not know how to get what he needed from humans. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need McCoy's advice. He's not asking for McCoy's advice. What he needs is an ally with the captain. And so he doesn't just go up and say, I need you to help me. He compliments McCoy by asking for his advice, and he is manipulating him in a good way, as a leader does, to get him on his side. That's what I think. That sounds great to me. I love it. (laughs) And and he does say that he has read the backup material that Kirk has suggested that they read. He has read it faster than McCoy has. Yeah, he says, fortunately, I read faster than you. And actually, (laughs) the outcome of... This scene is the scene for the two confront Kirk. Of course. And he it's, says, a set, it's a setup for that scene. In brief, Doctor, nearly half the crew and the captain were annihilated. The captain's name was Garavik. Same as our answer, his father. Among the survivors was a young officer on his first deep space assignment, James T. Kirk. I love all the information that we just got out of this. Uh, Lieutenant James T. Kirk on his first deep space mission, uh, his first deep space assignment, 11 years ago. Now, didn't Kirk stay with Tyree in Private Little War 13 years prior? Hmm. So, so if if that's true, my question is, like, why wouldn't that mission count as Kirk's first deep space mission or, or, or first deep space assignment? And when that did happen, when Kirk's first adventure to the planet Norrell in a, a private little war happened, was Kirk serving on the Farragut at the time? I will give you two answers. Okay. The first answer <laughs> is they didn't think about this. 
They don't, they, you know, they, they just wrote <laughs> yeah. some years. They didn't do the math. The second answer is it could be that someone who is assigned to a planet is not on a deep space mission. Like a deep space mission is the enterprise exploring strange new worlds. And this was, we dropped this one guy off here. So, That's, so like in, when, when he was on, uh, uh, when he was on the Nora planet 13 years ago, it might've been like, you know, he was, he was, uh, uh, uh an intern or something. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, okay. but I actually like your idea better that he's on, he was on the Farragut and this was one of his assignments. Right. I love it too. And the other thing, again, we're still maintaining the mystery is that we're giving you a little bit of information, sure. but we haven't said the last piece, which we're going to get now. This so is th the moment. This is, yeah. this is the great scene. This it is, is my favorite scene of the episode. Ralph, how, what, it, what are your, what are your memories overall of, of filming this scene, which I just think it's just Star Trek at its best. I don't know that I have special memories. I mean, I look at the scene and uh, it just looks like a scene the way I would do it. I mean, <laughs> um, in other words, I always try to get a scene established so that, I mean, it's quite a long time. I'm, he's lying there alone and, and we're hearing the backlog. And then he gets up and he goes to the desk and then... McCoy comes in, starts to talk to him. He goes back to his bed. I mean, it's, I was doing it in such a way so that I, I didn't bring McCoy in and have a, a, a two shot and two close ups. What was it always established that McCoy would come in first and then reveal oh, yeah. Spock? Oh, yeah. Or, or yes. was it like they all they came in together? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, I see. McCoy came in first to establish what he wanted to talk to him about. And then he called in uh, Spock because he needed a senior officer mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to do. So not only do I think this is a great scene and not only do I think it's an important scene in Star Trek, this scene, you know, we talked about the lessons we've learned in Star Trek. This scene in particular has lessons that I've thought of and used my whole life, including today. Can't have just vanished. Sometimes I do. If we're lucky. Monsters come in many forms. You know the greatest monster in them all, Jim? And at this point, Kirk looks up because he knows... He knows. He's all to him. Guilt. Get to the point. This is the sister scene to that great scene in Kirk's quarters in The Conscience of the King. And the reason I say that these are sister scenes is because obviously there are, are similarities to, what's a, to, to, to the motivations here, to being obsessed about something, or certainly driven by something, but also that you have... Kirk's two closest friends calling him out on his actions. But the difference, of course, is like I mentioned, is that in conscience, Kirk is driven by revenge and here he's driven by guilt. And also uh, Kirk is, is much more agitated and highly strong about what's going on. Um, and it, and it, it, it sort of escalates that the drama as, as we are going to see this as the scene plays out, Steve. What I'd love to is this initial misdirection. Jim, when a young officer is exposed to unknown dangers for the first time, he's under tremendous emotional stress. And Kirk thinks, as I think all of us do watching it the first time, that we're talking about Garavik. Ensign Garavik is a ship command decision. You're straying out of your field, Doctor. So he's pushing back on McCoy Hard, who says... Am I? I was speaking of Lieutenant James T. Kirk of the starship Farragut. And when he says that, what does Kirk do? What's Kirk's immediate response? He, he just he just puts his head back down on his hands on his bed. Yeah. Like he's like, okay, 
yeah, you got me. Which I, I, think, I think he was seated at the desk when he said that, and then he went back to his bed. Yeah, yeah and then he right. lies down right before that moment. Well, and the thing, too, he wanted them to get him because he told them both to read the report. That's it's true. Not, it's not like this was a secret, but he didn't want to say it himself because it's so painful. Eleven years ago, you were the young officer at a phaser station when something attacked. According to the tapes, this young Lieutenant Kirk insisted upon blaming himself. Because I delayed in firing. You had a normal emotion. You were startled. You delayed firing for a grand total of perhaps two seconds. If I hadn't delayed, it would have been killed. It sounds like everybody else exonerated him. Everyone said, no, he's a great... No one else blamed him on this ship. And Kirk can't hear that. Don't you understand? Killed two hundred crew. He cannot let it go. Like yeah. it's been, it's been, it's been simmering in him, and this just brought it all. This obviously, for obvious reasons, it brought brought it all to the surface. Captain Garovic was very important to you, wasn't he, Jim? Yes, he's my commanding officer from the day I left the academy. The finest man I ever knew. Hey, we answered our question. There you go. Because if he was his commanding officer from the day he left the academy, he had to be on the Farragut when he was beamed down to that planet. That's true. There you yeah. go. We answered that question. Um, <laughs> Mystery solved. I'd have killed that thing if I had fired soon enough the first time. You don't know that, Jim. You don't know that any more than you know that Garavik could have destroyed it. And it's so interesting. This whole thread of him having some telepathic connection with the creature is weird, but it does give you these interesting moments where he says, I can't help how I feel. There's intelligence about it, Bones. Malevolence, it's evil. You know what this made me think of? Kirk's intensity here? Star Trek VI. There you go. Let them die. Let, let them die. And that was also that was also some, uh, a, a, personal. A, a personal memory that was yeah. simmering for many, many years because of the death of David. I think Kirk is, we've said many, many times, is hugely compassionate up to a point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the point where it's personal, involves guilt, involves that stuff he can be pretty intense. Okay, so so my question back to you, Steve, and to Ralph, is when we were talking about the Doomsday Machine and we were talking about about Matt Decker, how just obsessed, how completely obsessed he is, he's Ahab, and, and we said, oh, we're, we're going to explore these themes again when we reach obsession with Kirk. Well, now we are here. So what is your take, both of you, starting with you, Ralph, on like how you see Kirk different from 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 Decker, how you know Kirk is certainly obsessed, and he's Ahab, but not may, maybe not to the level that of of Decker, or maybe he is at that level. I don't know Doomsday as well as you do, and my reaction to Decker was I thought he was mad. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there that, you go. That's the difference to me is Decker's gone round the bend. It's also Decker is right in the middle of the trauma, where Kirk is eleven years past the trauma. I, I, and I also think that I think Decker is done. I don't think he's ever coming back to being who he was oh, no, after that. Going into the yeah, if he doesn't die, I still think he's all kinds of messed up. Whereas that's not what I see from Kirk. But I do, yeah. But is he emotionally raw? Yes, absolutely. He's so obsessed. And Kirk's look on the word <laughs> obsessed. <laughs> I, I do have problems with using the titles of episodes. It's not exactly the title. This one, this one really jumps out at me. That where Spock saying the thing about obsession earlier was totally fine with me. That you could 
destroy yourself, uh, your career. And Kirk is done. A young boy who reminds you of yourself 11 years ago. Don't push our friendship past the point where I have to take a fish. This is professional, Captain. I am preparing a medical log entry on my estimation of the physical and emotional condition of a starship captain. And that music comes in, and the scene has become completely different. So I have a question. Was he always going to do this and, fu- and make this an official thing? Yes. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That's why, that's why Spock is waiting out in the corridor. Absolutely. And why didn't he just have Spock come in from the beginning? Because he, he, McCoy had him come in when he was needed, just in case. What I think is that McCoy is hoping that he can convince Kirk without going to this level. Exactly. And when he sees he can't, then he goes, we have to go official, and that, then he calls Spock it. Uh, I agree. That That is absolutely. Um, but, but but they still they still came with the intention of doing it, even if they're going to do it by stages. So McCoy walks over to the door, and you stage this in such a dramatic fashion. He says, Which requires a witness of command grade. And the door opens, and I love that Spock turns into the shot because it's so dramatic for this moment, I think. And the thing that makes it even more dramatic is there has been music playing, background music during the whole scene. And as Spock comes in, the music just stops. Yep. That is such a dramatic effect that the the music just stops. without, without Without any music. And, and also during that silence, there's like a, a few beats as Kirk steps forward towards them. Yes. Again, with the dramatic lighting and the, the, the shades of, of Finnerman in the background. And he just like, it waits a minute. Like he's like processing this. So, you know, I said that this scene has lessons to teach. Yes. I think that this scene is a blueprint for how to deal with conflict. Watch what Kirk does because he doesn't, as soon as he understands what's happening, he doesn't get defensive. Our normal human instincts is to become defensive. And becoming defensive only escalates conflict. And what he does is he clearly takes this moment, he sees what's happening, and responds in the calm, official way. Do I take it, Doctor? Commander? That both of you, or either of you, consider me unfit or incapacitated? Correctly phrased, Captain, as recommended in the manual. Our reply, also as recommended, is, Sir, we have noted in your recent behavior certain items which on the surface seem unusual. Then Kirk cuts him off. Listen, forget the manual. Ask your questions. I think this is another lesson of how to deal with conflict. Is sometimes when you're in conflict with someone, things can derail and go in the wrong directions. People can not say what they mean. Things can, we can use language that isn't the appropriate language. And what Kirk has said is, Okay, let's just let's just be honest with each other. Mm-hmm. Forget about that. Mm-hmm. Let's actually talk about the thing. Sir, the USS Yorktown is waiting now at the rendezvous point. It carries perishable Forget drugs. Forget the recitation, Spock, and all the facts. Again, we're moving forward. And, and I do love the way McCoy says, They need those factions on Theta 7, Captain. Now, why are we delaying here? Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> got that southern uh, doctor thing going. <laughs> because I'm convinced that this is the same creature that attacked the Farragut 11 years ago. As I lost consciousness, I could feel the intelligence of the thing. I could sense it thinking. And what's interesting is 
with Rizzo previously, when Kirk was talking to him as he was in a semi-conscious state, McCoy said, you can't trust that. The semi-conscious mind is a weird thing. He might have just been saying what you wanted to hear. He might have been dreaming. And now he says the same thing to Kirk. You state that it happened just as you lost consciousness. Now, the semi-conscious mind is a very tricky thing. A man never knows just how much is real or how much is imagination. And now Kirk lays out his points. Whatever it is, wouldn't you call it deadly? Yes, there's no doubt about that. And what if it is the same creature that attacked 11 years ago from a planet over a thousand light years from here? Obviously, Captain. If it is an intelligent creature, if it is the same one, if it therefore is capable of space travel, it could pose a grave threat to inhabited planets. And by the way, all along, even though Kirk is clearly uh, emotional about all this, he's right. He is. But he also uh, sees the problems with his argument. A lot of ifs, I agree. You know the, uh, what a straw man versus a steel man argument is? Mm-mm. A straw man argument, is, I'm having an argument with you, and I state your side of the argument in the weakest possible way, and then I destroy it. That is a, it's called a logical fallacy. It is a poor way of doing debate. It's not constructive. A steel man argument is I present the best version of your argument, and then I beat that. That's a good way of having logical debate. Kirk here doesn't say they're wrong. He says, yeah, that's a lot of ifs. I understand exactly what your objection is. And now I'm going to discuss that with you. Again, it's it's another lesson on how to deal with conflict. Actually listen to the other side and restate their point so that they know that you're listening to them and that you're hearing them. Intuition, however illogical, Mr. Spark, is recognized as a command prerogative. That's a great line. That's a really, really great line. Jim, we're not trying to gang up on you. Again, they're trying to handle this conflict well. And he says, and this is where I love Kirk. And you haven't, Doctor. You've expressed the proper concern. You've asked the proper questions. Everything that you just described, Steve, makes this scene seem like, like, like you could see the arc in this scene. Because you could see that, that it starts off one way. It, it does escalate a little. But then all three of them are working together to bring the argument down and, and bring it back to a conversation, a rational conversation. Yeah. And it's really, really beautiful. And I got to say that one thing I, I, I wrote down in my notes is that a scene like this makes Obsession feel like a first season episode. Because of the parallels to The Conscience of the King and because of the parallels to these two scenes and these two episodes. But it was after I wrote that note down that I found a quote from John Meredith Lucas that added to the context of why this feels like a first season episode. And I was going to save this to the end, but I think it's fitting for right now. So John Meredith Lucas says, if there was one element that I brought back to the show when I was producer because it had been a little lost was Gene Roddenberry's inspiration for the series, Captain Horatio Hornblower. And I do think that in this episode, in moments like this, we are feeling, we are feeling Kirk be like he was uh, in the first season before Gene Kuhn kind of made him more military. It's so funny whenever Hornblower comes up, because I've read those books. I don't think there's anything Kirk-like about Hornblower at all. (laughs) Hornblower is stiff, insecure, doesn't speak. He's completely 
a hard ass. He because because of his insecurity, he's almost nothing like Kirk. The adventures are very Star Trek like, but the character I don't think is like him at all. So you know but, when I said I, I want to add something. Yeah, just that when we discussed bread and circuses, and I made a point to uh, absolve Spock of the guilt when he was over mm. estimating the number of deaths and put the blame on Gene Kuhn. I, maybe Gene Kuhn didn't write this. I have had the feeling that he did write it. And I just, whoever wrote it, I just want to put the blame on them because it is just a bloody good scene. Yeah, it really is. And you know how I said that. And it starts with the typewriter. Of course. You know, I said that this helped me personally today, although I didn't realize it at the time. So Literally just a few hours ago as we were recording this, I had a very, very good friend who was really, really angry at me. And he had reasons to be really, really angry at me. And we talked through it, and we got to the end with our friendship, I think, stronger in some ways. And part of it is because I didn't get defensive. You know, I went, how do we solve this problem? I listened to what he said. I restated the things that he said to show that I understood what he was upset about. Did I think that he was totally right? No. Did, was I hurt and could I feel myself getting upset? Yeah, but I, <laughs> but I didn't let that derail our conversation. Wow. And it wasn't until after that that I was reading through my notes and got to this scene and I went, oh, I learned that from Star Trek. I learned that from watching how Captain Kirk, at his most vulnerable, is still capable of rationally discussing something with his friends without letting it get off the track. That's, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing, Steve. Now, may I ask what medical log entry you intend to make? And there's pause, and then McCoy says, At this point, my medical log remains open. And then red alert. Because uh-huh. <laughs> the creature is leaving the planet, and that is the end of Act 2. What a great scene. What a great scene. I love it. Well-directed scene, Ralph. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Act three, we're on the bridge. Scotty is looking very, very concerned. He is stressed out. Captain, we can't maintain warp eight speed much longer. Pressures are approaching the critical point. Range, Mr. Jacob. And it's the first time I really thought, wow, this thing is going at warp eight? This thing is really, really fast. And they're still out of range of phasers. So instead of saying slow down, Kirk asks for more speed. Yes. <laughs> and there's a reaction from Scotty who just kind of goes, Hi, sir. <laughs> um, it's it's like remember in Arena when he kept uh, increasing the speed to to chase mm-hmm. the Gorn. You know, you could see Scotty, you know, like getting ready to 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 lose it every time he he wanted to go faster. You know what? Arena is another time that relates to this episode where Kirk is off balance and a, and and a little obsessed. Absolutely, yeah. that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, and, and you know what we should say is that that drive that makes Kirk need to succeed and win and not quit and all that stuff. This is the flip side of it is that sometimes that drive can go too far. You know, when he crosses a certain line, he goes too far for sure. And then we increase the magnification on our screen and we get a good look at the creature in space. Wow. I love the redone effects on this one. I watched the redone effects too. Yeah. It looks great. It looks really great. Wait, Was that a redone? Yeah, they did uh, when they went back when you know Mike and Denise. Yeah, I knew that. I did. I didn't realize. Now, did they also redo then the effect earlier where we saw the the cloud come down on the men 
No, I don't think so. No, no, they they only did they only redid the visual effect of the cloud in space. Okay, all the planet stuff, all the stuff on the planet was was untouched. My understanding, I think, is they don't have access to like original negatives or anything like that. So they don't That's they right. don't have a clean you know shot that they could do a new effect on. That's correct. It seems to be in a borderline state between matter and energy, elements of both. It could possibly use gravitational fields for propulsion. And Kirk is trying to win his point about it being intelligent. He says, And you don't find that sophisticated, Mr. Spock. Extremely efficient, Captain. Whether that indicates intelligence is another matter. And then we get, again, remember Scotty at the beginning said that they're doing something with radiation in some valves or something? And now Chekhov says, Open hatch and impulse engine number two. Mr. Scott was doing an AID cleanup on it. So it's this one little plot point we're moving forward we won't be using the impulse engines turn the alarm off that's going to come back to haunt us yes it sure is captain we can't do it if we keep this speed we'll blow up any minute now and kirk looks around you do a really nice push in on him go to warp six and scotty is relieved yeah <laughs> we cut to garavik who's been uh confined to quarters he's lying down and in comes nurse chapel with some food this is a fun scene yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's the most important scene, but it is fun. It's it's a it's a it's a deep breath. It's a yeah. it's levity. Well, and it's, it's, a, it's setting up. It's setting up for right. Um, oh, that's right. You're yeah. right. Uh-huh. Um and she's trying to convince him to eat. And I, I do like that she's he asked what's happening and she says Are we still chasing that thing halfway across the galaxy? Yes. Has the captain lost his sense of balance? Maybe. Is the entire crew about ready to explode positively? <laughs> I think there was so much more Major Barrett could have done if they, they didn't always know how to write her. And I think she's really fun in this scene. And this is a, a, a flavor of hers. I would have loved to see more of. In the yeah. That, yeah. I agree with you. And I, I, I think there was still a feeling that, that she was there uh, because Jean wanted her there. Jean Roddenberry wanted her there. Uh, but when you see her in a scene like this, you go, wait a minute. No, she's, she's a necessary relevant part of this uh, of this crew if i'd fired my phaser quickly enough on argus 10 this wouldn't have happened you know self-pity is a terrible first course why don't you try the soup instead <laughs> and he resists that and she pulls out one of those data cards and says this is his officially logged prescription for you it has one word on it eat now if you don't follow his orders dr mccoy could and possibly would have you hauled down to sick bay and fed intravenously and she exits. Like she's great in the scene. And and then the button on the joke, she walks into sickbay where McCoy is. She puts down that little card. He goes, what's this? He looks at it. It's some kind of survey. I thought you took Garavik some food. What were you doing with this? Applying psychology. It's a, it's a, it's a good moment. It's a good and, beat. And I think that was the other scene that John Meredith Lucas mm. photographed. Oh, on. okay. Did you, when you knew that someone else was going to shoot some of your scenes, did that affect how you scheduled it? Like you kept the important scenes for yourself and like no, because it was oh no, oh no because it was all laid out yeah you know I start at the beginning would start at the beginning and just do it one page at a time you're building the movie you know as a movie right well and you're not going to go and shoot you know a scene in sick bay and then three days later shoot another scene in sick bay if you could shoot them back to back no 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 yeah uh, we're back on the bridge and the creature is slowing down to warp two I don't understand it was outrunning us. Maybe it's decided to fight. 
We're back with Garrick Vic, who's looking at his food. He's pulled the lid off of whatever it is. And then in a moment of anger, he throws that lid and we see in an insert that it hits a ventilation switch from active to bypass. And that was good aim on his part. Yeah. <laughs> um, or bad aim. That was why I cast him. <laughs> uh, yeah, because he can throw. <laughs> and then we hear a red alert and all decks battle stations. And what does Garavik do? He runs out. On the bridge, we see the creatures coming to a full halt. And Kirk is happy. He's like, I finally get to do what I couldn't do 11 years ago. This is the moment he was waiting for. They lock phasers on. Fire phasers, Mr. Chekhov. And there's a moment of almost it's going to be triumphant. And then, nope, those phasers go right through. Because you see that the creature just kind of parts. Yeah. You know, it's and the phaser just goes right into empty space. And it's also at that point that Garavik comes on the bridge mm-hmm. and he says, reporting for duty, sir. And Kirk is oblivious yeah. to the fact that he's there. Well, he's not quite oblivious. He does know that he's there, but he's definitely not paying attention. Well, and frankly. And they were all talking at the same time, too. Yeah. If you know yeah. And frankly, Gervik probably should shut up at this moment. <laughs> like maybe the Kirk has other things to do than talk to him. But uh, and he says, "Okay, we'll switch to photon torpedoes." So they switch to photon torpedoes. They fire those. There's a big shake. Nothing. Nothing. And now the creature is coming for us. Wow. And now we hear the number two impulse vent. We have a red light on it. Here's this thing that's been set up this whole time, <laughs> um, including that insert on the ventilation system in Gervik's room. And the creature is now in the ventilation system. When it entered impulse engine number two's vent, it attacked two crewmen, then got into the ventilating system, and now we have air for only two hours. Talk about a ticking clock. One man has a chance for survival. The other is dead. You can add that little price tag to your monster hunt. That's enough, boss. Don't go there. <laughs> well, and the thing is, this is what McCoy does. You know, he he is the person that speaks truth to power. He believes that Kirk is responsible for these deaths. It's not enough. You didn't care what happened as long as you could hang your trophy on the wall. Well, it's not on it, Captain. It's in it. I don't think I understood that line for years. And now I think that's just a brilliant line. Because the creature is inside, literally inside the walls. Yeah, of the yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I think when I was a kid, I didn't, under, I thought it was an expression. I didn't get it. Gentlemen, may I suggest we no longer belabor the question of whether or not we should have gone after the creature. The matter has been rendered academic. The creature is now after us. And McCoy says, creature. And Spock says, It turned and attacked, Doctor. Its method was well-considered and intelligent. So McCoy finally gets that Kirk was right all along, that this thing was intelligent, that it, it is a creature. And McCoy says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. And this is, again, for, if, for the Star Trek Guide to Resolving Conflict. McCoy sees that he's wrong and apologizes. And Kirk doesn't do an I told you so. He doesn't react to the mean thing McCoy just said to him a minute before and get angry about that. You see, you shouldn't have said that about me. And, you know, um, he doesn't do any of that. He just moves on. The apologies happen. Time to move on. Scotty, try flushing the radioactive waste into the ventilation system. See what effect that has. Hi. Do you want radioactive material yeah, in your ventilation that, system? It's not going to be bad for the rest of the ship. <laughs> yeah. And then Kirk walks forward and he turns into profile with Spock in the background in a medium shot. And this is, I'm assuming this is a wider lens you're on at this point, Ralph? Probably a 40. Because you got that big size change between Kirk's head and and Spock in the background. It's uh, and, a great... and, 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 and again, Kirk is very, very shaded. And, mm. and Spock is lit. 
Captain. The creature's ability to throw itself out of time sync makes it possible for it to be elsewhere in the instant the phaser hits. There is therefore no basis for your self-recrimination. If you had fired on time and on target 11 years ago, it would have made no more difference than it did an hour ago. Captain Garavik would still be dead. Fault was not yours, Jim. In fact, there was no fault. I love that, A, he starts by calling him Captain and ends by calling him Jim. Oh, it's great. Mm-hmm. You know? His motive was more to to help his friend. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and, and I also think it's realistic that when you carry guilt and pain for 11 years, even when you hear the evidence that it was unjustified, you can't let it go right away. I don't think Kirk is ready to drop it yet. He says, If you want to play analyst, Spock, you're someone else, not me. My concern is with the ship and the crew. Still covering up. And then he exit and Spock steps forward into that closer shot. So again, it's so funny, Ralph, because I feel like I've been studying you as a director, mm-hmm. and I just there, there are things like that that seem uniquely Ralph Sinensky's moves. Can I, can I say say something? Yeah, of course. of course. Most of what I do is not really, you know, they they didn't have film schools when I was starting, so that most of I what I do is transference from the book that was my Bible, Alexander Dean's Principles of Play Directing. Do you know I, that book? I do. That was a book. I don't think I have it anymore, but that was in when I, because I, I was a theater major. We That was a book we looked at. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that, I went through a course on that. I mean, that was my, my Bible. And then I just transferred all of that to film. As a matter of fact, when I was at Northwestern after the Playhouse and I was in a television class, they had a, finally had a, a television class, uh, except, I mean, they didn't have a television teacher. And at the end of the class, at the end of the thing, we had to write a, a term paper. And I wrote a film version of Alexander Dean's thing, and I got an A+. Plus. Hmm. That's great. That's great. Nice job. <laughs> We're in Garavik's quarters. I 100% understand why this scene is here. I don't think this makes sense. It's always rung weird to me. Uh, Spot comes in and is basically trying to make Garavik feel better. I would like you to consider that the hesitation for which you are blaming yourself is an hereditary trait of your species. He literally just had a scene a moment before with Kirk explaining why the hesitation wouldn't make any difference. And yet that information that he just told Kirk is not what he's using to try to make Garavik feel better. He's actually used something that will obviously make Garavik feel worse. I understand why it's here and why they did it that way, because they want Kirk to tell Garavik the thing about it not making a difference at the end. But it makes the scene, the scene has always felt weird to me. And the, the big thing is he needs to be there exactly. because of the uh, Here of comes the creature. The event. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in the Cushman book, I think I write about that as being a, an awkward scene, except what, what could he be talking about? Right. You know what? You're absolutely right. He does. He does point out that that the scene is not like doesn't fit. So, yeah, he does say that in, in, in Cushman's uh, it, These Are the Voyages book. It's totally where you're like, I got to get Spock in this room. Yeah, I can't well, yeah. have him say this stuff. And there you and this is the solution they came up with. But it's not a, it's not a great one. Well, but you, as, get, you get by it fast. Yeah. And, 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 and honestly, I don't think we're supposed to think what Spock is saying is all that great. And you even, you know, the camera kind of pans off him as Spock is sort of droning on and goes over to the vent where we see right. the creature coming out of the vent. You smell something 
Sir, it's coming to the vent. Get out of here. I'll take the cigarette off. And Spock manhandles Garavik, throws him out of the room, hits the switch, which breaks in his hands, and then the only solution he can think of is to try to cover that vent with his hands. And what is the difference between between trying to cover the vent with his hands and hitting the switch to ignite the fuel in the Galileo 7, Steve? It's an act of desperation. Correct. It is what, an act of desperation. Well, it's funny that you bring that up because what I was thinking about is in Balance of Terror when the there's the, the leak from the phaser thing and he, and he gets rid of uh, Styles. It's very similar. And Wrath of Khan where he goes at the end to sacrifice his life. Spock being in the room alone with something deadly to save the ship, that's a Spock thing to do. You know? Absolutely. That is totally a Spock thing to do. <laughs> and that is the end of Act 3. And what an end to Act 3 it is. So the creature's in my cabin. He's got Mr. Spock. On my way, Garavik. Security, 341. Medical alert. He's got it. Reverse cabin pressure, 341. And we see the smoke go in reverse yep. out through the vent. So that worked pretty well. And we're outside the door. And McCoy is ready to run in. And Kirk stops him. Jim, Spock may be dying. If we let that thing into the ship, you'll have a lot of company. The Kirk is making the right command decision. To For sure he yeah, is. He might be letting his friend die, but that's what he has to do. One versus the other 427 people in yeah. the Enterprise. You saved my life, Captain. I should be lying dead in there, not him. Fortunately, neither of us is dead, Ensign. <laughs> I love Kirk's uh, reaction. <laughs> Don't misunderstand my next question. Mr. Spock, why aren't you dead? It's that green blood of his. My hemoglobin is based on copper, not iron. I'll bet he left a bad taste in the creature's mouth, too. <laughs> and then, again, I think this is a weird thread throughout the whole show, but I understand why it's there. It may not be communications, we understand it, but I did know it was alive and intelligent, and I think I know something else now. The reason I think it's weird is that there, I don't like just purely sort of mystical reasons that people know things. That that's not it feels not Star Trekky to me. Well, you know? I don't know if it's mystical. I, I feel like the scent is different because the scent is is basically sending him a message. And I think I don't think it's mystical. I think it's 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 physical uh, because it's an actual scent that's saying, okay, time for the showdown. You know, the gunfight at the OK Corral, so to speak. You know, we're going to go back to to what where it all happened. I think that's the message. I think it's definitely more of a physical thing. Well, I think it is. I, I think mystical is the wrong word. What I mean is that when suddenly somebody knows something and we don't see the detective work, we don't see the reasoning. It's just I just know this because I felt a thing is not. Although it's funny if you read Stephen King books and I've read 20 plus Stephen King books, he does that all the time. He loves that sort of I knew that I was supposed to. I don't know how I know, but I know I have to be there for whatever that thing is. That is a very classic Stephen King thing. Anton Garrick. Yes, sir. You were on the bridge when we were attacked. And Garavik starts to apologize because obviously he wasn't supposed to be there. And Kirk interrupts him by saying, very commendable. So he lets him off the hook for that. So already Kirk is treating him much yeah. softer than he right, treated right. him before. He's basically realizes that I think at this point that he was definitely too hard on him. I think what Kirk does, what's happening here is so sophisticated because the one thing is Spock told him it wasn't his fault and he was not able to accept it at that time. And it is through, and I don't know if you've had the experience, I definitely have, where I couldn't deal with a thing myself, but in through helping someone else deal with it, I actually helped myself. 
Sure. Yep. And his way of doing it with Garavik, Spock just told him it's not your fault. That's not what Kirk does. Kirk essentially uses the Socratic method. He asks questions to lead Garavik to a specific conclusion. I'm asking for your military appraisal, the techniques used against the creature. Ineffective, Captain. I realize, Captain, you did everything you could do. I know that. It's just that nothing works against a monster that can do the things that thing does. Well, Kirk has now led him to the conclusion that you don't have anything to be guilty about. And, Anson, what is your appraisal of your conduct on the planet? And you could see the emotions hitting him now. I delayed firing. And if you hadn't delayed firing. And Garavik looks down. And he looks down so that after Kirk's next line for his reaction, he can turn back to the camera. First of all, technically, that's brilliant of doing it that way. And for me, also, I'm picturing him picturing the dead bodies of his friends. That's what I feel like's happening. And so what Kirk did was first he created the conclusion of why he's not guilty. Then he brought him to the center of his guilt, put him right in the guiltiest possible moment, and he says, No difference, Anson. No weapon known would have made any difference. Then, or 11 years ago. And as Kirk says the words, 11 years ago, he is letting himself off the hook yes. at the same time he is letting Garavik off the hook. Yes. He, you see, you see that he has this epiphany. He has this closure finally. And then the way Shatner stands upright, composes himself and says, Report for Jody Anson. And then Stephen Brooks is Garavik. The, the surprise, the relief, and then the confidence. Thank you, sir. And then he runs off like he is just, ah, what a relief. The weight of the world, the weight of the galaxy has been lifted on off of his shoulders. And I have to say, both of these actors in this moment are superb with the subtle shifts in emotion. Shatner is terrific, and Stephen Brooks is terrific in this scene. It just made me think, boy, I wish we could have seen more of Garavik because Stephen Brooks just really was fantastic in this episode. Well, and I think, too, one of the things we talked about of the really good episodes of Star Trek is that we have an action journey, we have scientific ideas, and we have an emotional journey. And we, we're moving through that emotional journey. And, and this, this moment, I think that scene is such a sophisticated scene of resolving that journey. We're back on the bridge. The creature has left the ship. I believe I know where it's going. It has changed course before to mislead us, Captain. Logic would dictate. Oh, I'm playing intuition. He's back in control. He's let go of the guilt. He's let Garavik off the hook. He's not being clouded by obsession anymore. He's relying more on his confidence. He's relying more on his intuition and, of course, the experience that he had. And he's like, like you, you could see the shift. He's like, yeah. I know what we're going to do, and we're going to do it, and that's it. It's the time factor that bothers me. Those drugs are perishable. And then Spock says, again, this is something we have no evidence of the show. I don't know why he knows this. And yet he says, because it's a key piece of plot. Evidence indicates the creature is here to spawn. If so, it will reproduce by fission, not just into two parts, but thousands. Thousands. That's a lot. And we come up with a plan. We're going to use antimatter and we're going to beam down and we need some hemoglobin, which is going to bait the creature in. And then we hear the concern, which is antimatter is so powerful that it's going to blast away half the atmosphere, and that's a threat to the ship. 
And we don't know if we can beam people up during this antimatter blast. Again, just like so, so many of the great Star Trek episodes, there's always like the, the, way, the way that that the stakes keep getting higher and higher. It will require two men to transport the antimatter unit. I'd like permission to go with you, sir. I had you in mind, Mr. Garlick. Which is great because he's giving him, just like he gave Bailey the opportunity to face the unknown in Corbinite Maneuver, he's giving Garavik an opportunity to redeem himself from earlier. Absolutely. Not that he even needed to, but it is still Kirk's gift to Garavik to really help him restore his, his dignity and honor. We beam down to the planet. They have some big floaty device. I love the little, I love the little anti-gravity-ness of the way they move this thing around. <laughs> oh, you know what? I, I had a question for you, Ralph, about this scene. So as Kirk and Garavik are making their way across the landscape with the antimatter and the thing that holds it, in the sky, you had clouds, just like you did while you were filming Metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. So while you were filming that scene with the clouds, what were the steps that you had to take in this case, or was it sort of the same that you did with Metamorphosis? Well, so, wait, wait, were the clouds in every shot, or just in that one shot as they're moving? Just as the one shot as they're moving. So, yeah, and for that shot, I mean, we would close the doors, everybody stands still, and then you pump it up there. Wow, it's so awesome! It's so great! It looks yeah. so cool. They're moving the the bomb into position. And just as they're starting to do that, we look over and the creature has descended on that big jar of blood. <laughs> and we watch as it slowly turns from red to clear. So there goes the bait. We'll have to use something else for bait. So that thing only feeds on blood. And it's great because we don't have to say what Kirk's thinking. We understand what Kirk's thinking. And Garavik understands what Kirk's thinking. And we understand that Garavik gets it. Captain, you're not going to be the bait. So get back to the ship. Ensign, I gave you an order. And then he takes a beat, and then he tries to give him the old karate chop to knock him down. <laughs> so now here's here's my question. So all throughout the course of this episode, we have established a parallel between Kirk and Ensign Garavik. That Garavik is the younger version of Kirk, and that Kirk sees himself in young Garavik. Now, now that we are seeing Garavik pull a move. Do you think that that's what young Lieutenant Kirk would have done if he was in a similar situation? Do you think that he would have tried to play the hero and save his captain so he could sacrifice himself to destroy the crew? I don't don't know about that, but that's why I wanted to do that added scene on Mm. Arabic's entrance. The reason he does it is because he admires Kirk as Kirk admired his father. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the, the way it is now, it's nice, but there, there, there isn't the emotional attachment that there could have been if we'd had that little interplay at the beginning. Uh, my answer to your question, Scott, is one hundred percent yes. I totally think Kirk. Yeah, no, I if think he, Kirk would have done that. He oh, yes. Done the same thing. oh yes. And Garavik tries to kind of drag Kirk away, and Kirk gets up, punch to the belly, right cross to the face, pushes him <laughs> up against that big rock that moves a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I says, <laughs> and says consider yourself a report there's no time for heroics I have no intention of sacrificing myself at least not yet but now we realize he's going to do the beam out right at the last possible moment and what 
episode doomsday machine doom i didn't even have to finish the question Steve I, morris knew exactly where i was going i knew you were going to ask me that question before we even got there <laughs> oh, oh, see this what, is what happens what, what, what's the question you're asking so the, the this moment where it's a race against time and kirk is is talking to the enterprise saying you know scan us lock into us beam us up as soon as you, you know as soon as i give the word it's it's very similar to when Kirk is on the Starship Constellation and and the, the Constellation is going into the Planet Killer. They have to beam Kirk off the Constellation before the Constellation explodes. And in this case, they have to beam Kirk and Garavik off the planet before the antimatter explodes. And they're using, uh, you know, in this episode, in the scene route, you're using the exact same music that was used during that final moment aboard the constellation in uh in doomsday machine well and, and how about the fact that it's also the same as the ending of bread and circuses where oh, they yeah. had to beam oh you're right before they they got shot by the machine yeah. guns wait you're really good at this <laughs> about, um, uh, uh, these these uh really intense like like last like edge of your seat moments uh that, that must have been that, that must be really fun to do because you know for two episodes in a row now you had real real down to the down to the wire moments uh, uh for 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 our heroes what i love about this one too is what makes it slightly different is that last moment where the creature's almost there and we're standing we're about to energize and we hear it's forward captain sickly honey sweet that just changes the whole for lack of a better word flavor of this moment that last connection with the creature. Flavor as well. And then he says, now, energize and detonate. And they start to beam up. And you're right, it's just like bread and circuses. That explosion happens right as they dematerialize. And now we have a real rough time getting them to materialize on the en- on the Enterprise. Just like at the end of Doomsday Machine, yeah. they had a hard time beaming Kirk back. Do something. We are, Doctor. <laughs> and they cross circuit to A, whatever that means. Got them. A piece of them anyway. Cross-circuiting to B. Whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we get a classic McCoy line. Crazy way to travel, spreading a man's molecules all over the universe. Even in a, a super intense, yeah. high-strung moment, McCoy is still McCoy. And then they finally materialize. Just in the nick of time. Captain, thank heaven. Mr. Scott, there was no deity involved. It was my cross-circuiting to B that recovered them. And then McCoy says, well, thank pitchforks and pointed ears. And, and, and as the two of them are materializing, and as they start to move, if you notice, Garavik looks at his hands. Yeah, he does. I and didn't notice that. Why does he do that? Well, because, I mean, you've just, you know, been dematerialized to rematerialize, and it's just automatically, am I all here? That's a great, it's a great touch, like, oh, especially because they had problems and, and, and being he, back. He just, he just did that. I, I, I think, I mean, that, that's a good actor. Now the creature is dead, let's save some lives. We'll deliver your medicine. And then he turns to Garavik and says, Meet me in my quarters when you've cleaned up. I'd like to talk to you about your father. Several tall stories I think you'd like to hear. Thank you, sir. I would. And they all exit the transporter room. That brings us to the end of Obsession. And- yeah. And, oh, and one other thing that was great about the uh, the version of this episode with the new visual effects is as the Enterprise is leaving the orbit of Tycho 4, you see the explosion that was left behind by the antimatter and the way that it ripped off half of the atmosphere. Mm. 
you know, obviously they couldn't do that in 1967 when they filmed right. the episode, but uh, uh, you know, this is little, little subtle touches like that is why I, I think these new visual effects are really, really fun. Agreed. Ralph, how would you sum up your experience directing your fourth Star Trek episode? Uh, it, it was easier than the others uh, because I was kind of attuned to it and the fact that I went right from bread and circuses into it and it was right up my alley. I mean, it was a closet drama. You know, and, and I got to say that that for for the first two episodes you did, which were so very, very sensitive to bread and circuses and now this, which have a whole lot going on and have a lot of, of drama and action and definitely suspense, especially towards, you know, those, those final moments in these two episodes. Uh, so, so at this point, did you already have like your next assignment for Star Trek? Or did you- I knew that. Yes. I had been booked to do two assignments after, uh, after metamorphosis, bread and circuses and, and another one. And then, obsession got tossed in so i still had the other one you know the other one of the two and it turned out to be returned tomorrow how does your assessment of obsession hold up or even change or get stronger after this deep dive conversation oh it's stronger yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, it's strong it's tight it's just tight and it i just have a feeling that that the the pace and the suspense and the build is just relentless I just love this episode even more. The way that 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 you know, Ralph, and you know this because you've been listening all this time, is that the way we've been we've been linking and, and tying the series together and really seeing how serialized it does work, even though that was not the intention. It's really presenting the entire series in a in a completely fresh new light. And and, and this is another episode. Uh, especially because you you know to have you with us to join us and uh, break it all down and, and follow along with us like this has just been such a an incredibly well not rewarding experience just doesn't cover it. Uh, Steve and I I know we are we are we are both grateful and 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 Ralph every time that we finished uh, the other three episodes that you did Steve and I would call each other and we go that was awesome and I know that <laughs> I know that we're going to do that again. <laughs> so I been thinking about what makes this episode so important to me. And I think because of what happened emotionally with me today, I've really figured it out, which is, and it's really about Star Trek in general, is that yes, there are great science fiction ideas that make you think, and yes, there's great adventure, but what's key to it is, Ralph, as you said, it's that these characters are human. And like humans, they have to struggle their way through these ideas and deal with their own issues. And like, you know, we just recently did Journey to Babel and that is such a human episode of someone struggling with something personal. Then Private Little War, which Kirk is struggling with these ideas and with these people he cares about and how to solve the solution. And here we see Kirk struggling with his guilt. And so the reason that I can take so many lessons from Star Trek is not just because someone is giving the lessons like, this is what's good and this is what's bad. No, it's because I'm watching human beings struggle through things and find ways to succeed. And for this one, it's that it's that scene of watching Kirk, who is as upset and obsessed and guilt-ridden as you can imagine, not get defensive and work with his friends to solve the problem. That's what, what this means to me. Well, uh, that is what makes this episode mean so much more to me, Steve. And and just going through this episode, but that, that scene in particular, uh, I think is an even more fully realized scene because of the reasons that we discussed 
then the sort of sister scene that takes place in the conscience of the king. And I just think this is such a personal episode. It plays to all of the strengths of, of the, the big three, so to speak, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. I, I think that uh, Stephen Brooks's performance is just absolutely magnificent. The parallels between Garavik and Kirk and, and just that moment when Kirk lets them lets them both off the hook, you know, himself and Garavik is just such a poignant, powerful, rousing moment, the way Garavik just runs off down the corridor like he's so happy, like he's a kid. It's such a great moment. And uh, uh, this is a, an episode that I've always loved. And uh, now I'm even more obsessed about it, uh, <laughs> fittingly. So uh, Ralph Sinetsky, you know, we can't thank you enough, as always, for joining us here on Enterprise Incidents. And uh, Steve, uh, where can people find you out there in the universe? Well, first they can find Enterprise Incidents on Facebook. We love interacting with there. It's Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. And if you want to find me, you could do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And normally I'm pitching some episodes of my other podcast, The Cinephiles, but today I just feel like pitching my own work. So if you want to see my film, The Assistance, which stars Joe Montaigne, Jane Seymour, and Stacey Keach, it's available on iTunes, but it's also available for free on The Cinephiles YouTube page. And my Great White Shark documentary, Great White Shark Beyond the Cage of Fear, is available on Amazon Prime. Wow, I love it. Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Man. So make sure you share Enterprise Incidents on your social media platforms so other people can find us. Uh, you know, we love the reactions we've been getting, whether they're on the Apple Podcast page, which we strongly urge you to review Enterprise Incidents on the Apple Podcast page, even if you're listening to, to Enterprise Incidents on YouTube. Head over to Apple Podcasts and review us there because those reviews are crucial. And of course, make sure you comment below if you are listening to us on YouTube and let us know what you think of Enterprise Incidents. But please do share Enterprise Incidents so more people can discover the greatest Star Trek podcast of the greatest Star Trek series of them all. And coming up next on Enterprise Incidents, I'm going to wager 50 Quatlus that you are not going to want to miss our deep dive on the gangsters of Triskelion. That is next on Enterprise Incidents. And until then, keep going boldly. <laughs>